The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are talking with Emily Ryman. Emily Ryman is an aerospace control operator in the Royal Canadian Air Force, the Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion on the Senior Leadership Team for Elevate Aviation and Project Coordinator for Allies in the Workplace. She holds a Bachelor of Arts with Honours in Sociology and a Master's Degree in Interdisciplinary Studies with a focus in Equity Studies. Emily is currently working in the Combat Operations Centre in Cold Lake, Alberta and has deployed operationally on Operation Reassurance in Romania and Operation Impact in Kuwait. She has participated in numerous exercises throughout North America and has had the opportunity to travel throughout her military career. Emily is a member of the Defence Women's Advisory Organization that seeks to address and overcome barriers that women face in the workplace and a member of the Transforming Military Cultures Network, a collaboration that seeks to challenge, reimagine and transform the Canadian Armed Forces culture into one that embraces inclusivity and difference. Emily was recently published in the Canadian Military Journal for an ethnographic article on culture change as a wicked problem throughout the CAF through her lens as a junior non-commissioned member. Through academia and personal passion, she is committed to bettering the workplace through the implementation of diversity, equity, and inclusion practices. She believes deeply in allyship as a way to lighten the burden on others and to create a more inclusive world. Emily was born and raised in Niagara Falls, Ontario, and is the youngest of three. She loves to golf, cross-country ski, weight train, and stare up at the stars as she loves all things astronomy and space. I truly could not be more excited to have her join me today. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. I am actually very excited to be here. (laughs) That's good. I know I always say that I I could not be more excited, but it's true. All of our guests are exciting, interesting people, and I always am so grateful that they they make the time for us. So thank you for making the time for us in the show. Of course. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Without any further ado, we will jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation? Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, my uncle is in aviation. He has been his whole life. Uh, it's not really in my family except for him. So he is a pilot. He's done all kinds of amazing things throughout his career. And I always thought that was pretty neat, but it wasn't my starting point. So my lifelong goal was actually law enforcement. And I did do that. I achieved that. So I'm very proud of it. But then I wanted just a new adventure. And before that, I was uh, involved in Kisera. So I did ground search and rescue. And I just loved it. I enjoyed the environment so much. And then from there, I worked uh, with Garda. So I was a screening officer at the London airport. And I loved that job so much. I just enjoyed it. I loved meeting the passengers. I loved the people I worked with. And I just really loved planes. So that environment, being in an airport, it was definitely my jam. And I wanted to travel. So I had applied for the RCAF and here I am nine years later. So that was kind of my start and a little pieces that really led me into aviation as a whole. I didn't know you had sort of this uh, original starting point within Kassara because I had uh, a couple of years ago, I was at a talk that Kassara was giving and I left that discussion, that that sort of hour long discussion panel that they had 
a changed person. It absolutely <laughs> revolutionized the way I fly, the way I think about flying, the way I deliver my passenger briefings. It was this huge pivotal moment in changing the way I think about that. So yeah, to have any any involvement with that organization. I know it's so often volunteer led, but I, I tip all my hats to them because it, it fundamentally changed the way I approach passenger briefings, which may sound so silly, but it, it, it was a it was a revolutionary discussion for me to to sit down on. So I, I always have a soft spot for Kassara now. Yeah, I, I do as well. I learned so much just from that crew and they're all so passionate as well. And being volunteer based, they all bring such unique skills to that organization. And I just really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. That's where I got my my radio license and I had tried. I tried to be a spotter in the plane, but I get too sick and I would throw up every single time. So that wasn't really for me. But I, I learned a lot and it was really fun learning how to find ELTs and to track them down, kind of hone in on those skills. So yeah, I also have a soft spot for that organization for sure. So I have to say, maybe I'm a little naive, but this idea of I wanted to travel, so I joined the Canadian Air Force. How did that jump happen? You know, you know, there's no real uh, story behind that. I just knew that there was an opportunity to travel and I wanted to, to do something hard. So I applied for infantry initially, which is always wow. funny when I reflect on that. It was my, my first choice. Uh, infantry, military, police, and postal worker. I don't know what the thought process was there. I think in the recruiting office, they had said that uh, you get to go to Germany. I'm not sure where that came from, but I thought, yeah, that's for me. That's the one. So I had a lot of uh, lot of thoughts about where I was going to go. And aerospace control operator, which is my trade, was not even anything I considered. So it kind of came out of the blue. And uh, like I say, here I am now, which I it, it's an interesting process. I don't, I don't always know how I got here, but uh, and I have traveled a lot. So it worked out in my favor, I think. I would say, I think a postal role could actually be quite interesting. I see every now and then, I think it was the British Royal Mail. They wanted to have postal workers on one of the islands that I think in near Antarctica, and you were going to be like their official representative there. And I thought, yeah, I could just like take a year off of my life and go be a postal worker in Antarctica. Yeah. So I think it's uh, deceivingly opportunities for travel within sort of postal work. Yeah, I mean, they work hard. Every time I go in there, they're super busy. And especially during COVID when everyone was doing online deliveries. Oof, yeah, they worked really hard. And they do have a lot of co opportunities as well. It just wasn't for me. So I'm I'm glad that I didn't go into that trade. So you mentioned that presently you work as an aerospace control operator, that that was your trade. What is that role? And if I'm just going based on name alone, how is that different from an air traffic controller per se? You know, I thought I was going into air traffic control. So <laughs> I, uh, I had a bit of a misconception I don't have a military background. My family's not in the military, so I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge on what I was getting myself into. And that includes the trades as well. So an aerospace control operator does a variety of things. I don't know the exact number, but we have an astronomical amount of things that we can go into for our trade. So you can specialize in air defense, uh, air traffic control. There's, uh, there's other things that you can do too, like the readiness training flight, all sorts of things. So going into it, I had this idea that I would be an air traffic controller, which is not true. That's actually the officer version, the AEC. So when I went in, I was actually on my initial training course and they had mentioned a term called a B stand. And I raised my hand and I said, what's a B stand? And they said, well, that's you. That's what you're going to be doing. And I just had a moment of panic 
what did I make a mistake? Like, what am I doing? Um, so the aerospace control operators in a tower, they will do the support roles, but then they also do ground control, um, flight advisory as well. And they can also do PAR. So you can specialize in that. Uh, so I started off in ATC and I worked in the tower as a B-stand, which is, you know, you're monitoring who's up, who's down, you record the ATISs, things like that, kind of just working in that environment along with the officers and the ground controllers. And from there, I decided, you know, this isn't what I'm really loving doing. So I moved over to 42 Radar where I work in air defense. So that's another stream entirely. It's a whole other world, but I really enjoyed that. That was more my jam. So what does sort of the radar element of uh, your work involve? How is that different from what you were originally doing? Uh, so 42 Radar is uh, a very different uh, unit. So it is self-sustaining, which means they do everything themselves. They are a tactical mobile unit, hmm. and they're responsible for the actual radar that we have on the base. So they are also responsible for the maintenance of it and the moving of it. So if we ever had to take it down to the states to get refurbished or if there was a repair, then we would be the ones to load it onto the 1510 trucks and drive it down ourselves. So we're meant to be self-sustainable. We're able to pack up and go. I know they've been doing some incredible work around the world lately and they deploy often, they're very busy. And we also manage, um, there's so the two streams as well. So the, the officer version of my trade they're the controllers for when the fighter jets go up and they do their missions. So they're actually doing the tactical control with them. And then my job at 42 Radar would have been the data link component. So really monitoring what's going on with that. It really is like a video game. That's the best way I can explain it is you were looking at the distances and if somebody is uh, friendly or if they are hostile and then identifying in that way, pairing them together, uh, that sort of thing. So it is super fun. It's, like I say, just a giant video game, but a very important job as well. No, it, it sounds incredibly important. And I think this is part of the, the, I mean, just besides having a bunch of TLAs, which is what aviation and I mean, so many other things, including the Canadian forces uh, have, but it could lead to a lot of misunderstandings or miscommunications of what everything is. So having not had a military background, finding yourself in a trade that you didn't initially know maybe exactly what you were getting into what would you say is maybe maybe the biggest misconception people have or the biggest learning curve that people have when they go into the canadian forces from your experience yeah i think for me is i actually didn't have any understanding at all i thought that it was really combat heavy so in high school we didn't learn a whole lot about the canadian armed forces for us it was you are a soldier which is true soldier first but I didn't understand that there was trades and there was career opportunity and that you could spend 25 years in and just have an amazing time. I didn't realize that you could get your education through the CAF. I didn't realize that you could, uh, the difference between officers and non-commissioned members. I didn't know any of that uh, because we just had the idea that it was you join as infantry, you're a soldier and you go to war. That was my only perception of what the CAF was. So once I joined, it was a huge learning curve to understand what do we contribute to Canada and the world and what are the opportunities, what do deployments mean? Because you kind of have this idea that a deployment is going to war, but you don't think about, you know, domestic deployments or, you know, ones during peacetime or peacekeeping missions. I had to learn all of that on top of learning rank structure and learning all the things that, you know, make the military what what we are. 
God, that just sounds like it would have been such a time. And then to find yourself in the middle of that going, wait, the course that I'm on is not what I thought it was. It would just be so much all at once. <laughs> it was, yeah. It, like I say, it was a journey, that's for sure. So having, I'm going to sort of politely say, taken the hard route and had to learn a lot over the years, what advice would you have for someone that's considering a career within the Canadian Armed Forces? I would say go on the website. I know that seems so simplistic. There's so much information on there about what each of the jobs are. I know it's not always a very holistic view. For example, my trade, there's some things in there that don't even talk about what I'm currently doing in my job right now at the Combat Ops Center. But it's a starting point. You know, it gives you an idea of, is this something I'm interested in? And then I would also say, find a mentor, reach out to someone who's in the cast, if you know someone, and if not, you can always lean on organizations like Elevate Aviation that can link you up with a mentor. And just ask, ask the questions, you know, what, what was it like? What was basic training like? Really prepare yourself because I, I don't think there's ever too many questions and just being able to go into it and having more of an idea of what you're getting yourself into can really prepare you and it'll excite you as well. So I, I think hearing, you know, the good and, and maybe the not so good, just the real, a good hard truth about what it's like to be in the CAF would be really helpful for anyone who's looking to join. Um, because we know there's always highs and lows, right? So leaning on people that do have those answers, I think is really important, just rather than going in with no idea whatsoever. No, you make an excellent point, which is that uh, just being connected to someone in the Canadian Armed Forces or specifically in the element that you're looking to move towards would not only be a great way to actually get to sort of know someone who's already there, but really get a contemporary impression of what it's like. Um, as much as I love having mentors who've been in the industry for 10, 20 years, they don't always have the most current information or most current experience of what it's actually like. So sometimes it's it's those peer mentors or people that are only a couple of years ahead of you, so to speak, that can be the most uh, impactful and helpful. Yeah, that's for sure. And there's even, you know, if, if you don't know anyone or if someone's looking to join, there's Facebook groups for that. And people are so free with their information. They're so kind. They will say, hey, I'm, I'm looking to apply for, I'm always just using my example, but aerospace control operator. And then folks will go on there and they say, hey, I'm actually an EC op and here's what my day-to-day -day looks like. So even if, you know, you're looking at it and you think, I don't know anyone at all that I can reach out to, that's always an option as well. Now, in addition to your regular role within the armed forces, you are also part of the Transforming Military Cultures Network, the Defense Women's Advisory Organization, and you were a co-chair from 2019 to 2021, and you're also a positive space ambassador. What does all of this mean and why did you get involved in all these different sort of uh, side pursuits within the Canadian Forces? <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. Um, what does all this mean? Well, I, I truly believe that we have a lot of work that we can do. And I say we because I, being a member of the CAF, am a part of this. So we want to change the culture of the CAF as it stands, um, recognizing that it there are some systemic issues that we are dealing with and living with. So really learning how to break those barriers so that women and underrepresented groups can really thrive in the CAF is, is important. So for me, I felt like it was an inherent responsibility, um, not just for myself, but for other women or underrepresented groups. You know, we know the statistics are quite low in the CAF and, you know, what can I do as a member even being a junior member, what can I do to really start to advance that and change those change those conversations that we're having and, and change the future of the cast? So it started off with 
the Defense Women's Advisory Organization. I joined as a member and that was back in 2015. I just started off, I, I didn't really know what I can contribute, but a lot of times it's just getting into those spaces and seeing where you can help or understanding what the issues are and it all starts to come together from there. And then in terms of positive space, that was within the last few years that I got involved with that program. And that is a program that advances the LGBTQ plus community and bringing awareness uh, to the community and in allyship. So for me, being an ally is so important because I feel very strongly about not placing the burden on those folks that have to educate others. So for me, coming alongside them and saying, hey, don't worry, I got you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach these courses and, and really help facilitate those conversations and help us all grow and understand so that members of the LGBTQ plus community can feel safe and included within the CAF is very important to me. So that's kind of my angle is always, how can I help uh, use my voice to make things better for others? Because I, I do believe that, again, it is a burden of responsibility. And I, and I think that that's something that I can keep working towards and advancing in. Um, the Transforming Military Cultures Network, Oh, I am always so astounded by the work that everyone does on that team. It's, uh, that is new. We're in our second year and uh, we just had a conference in Halifax recently. And I just always come away from that so inspired. These are people that have spent their lifetime researching the CAF, figuring out ways that they can, uh, you know, make things more inclusive for everyone, finding the problems, finding solutions, identifying those barriers, speaking truth. Uh, to people that have experienced negative things. So for me, I'm always so, so impressed with the work that they do. And it's just an honor to actually be on that network. I have always admired that about you, that there is this sort of inherent quality in you of what can I do with what I have right now? How can I use who I am and the privilege that comes with that and apply it to making it a little bit better for someone else who has less privilege? It is so easy to look around and see people that have more than you and often it can be hard to see those that don't have the same amount of privilege as you do. Um, but I, I have to say, if I'm totally, totally selfish here and fangirling, I have looked to you as sort of an inspiration <laughs> in terms of someone that can be an example to others of how to best use the privilege that they have for the betterment of everyone. So no, I, I, you have that inherent quality, but it's also something that I actually really admire about you. Oh, thank you. So I know recently you completed a change management professional certification. What hmm. was that experience like? How did this come up for you? And how do you plan on using it going forward? Yeah, that was one of the best courses I think I've ever taken. Um, hmm. It was so interesting. And it was through the Allies in the Workplace organization. So um, I had taken this course. So Nova Andrews is also another member on Allies in the Workplace. She had taken it as well. And it really is to learn how do we create change that's effective and sustainable and how do we implement that? So we always wanna make change, right? Especially when it comes to DEI and um, culture change. Like it's always, okay, we're gonna make a new policy and we're gonna put it out there. It's always the go-to. We just wanna put things out there and we wanna move on, but it has to be a lot more structured than that. And what I learned from that course is how do we structure change and how do we get that buy-in from people around you. So how do we gain that desire? You know, so they use the ad car model and that awareness, the desire, 
um, your understanding. So how do we really dig into that to make sure that our, our changes are not falling flat? And it was a three-day course. It was interactive, it was incredible. The folks that I was on the course with were just so much fun. And I think that always makes a big difference too. Mm-hmm. And everyone wanted to be there, which I think is always a game changer when you're on a course if people are actually enjoying it. But I think the takeaway for me is I can apply that in the Allies in the Workplace team. So for us in the work that we do, we are always trying to come alongside organizations to help them advance the DEI. in aviation organizations. And a big piece of that is, of course, they're gonna wanna implement new things. They're gonna wanna implement programs or initiatives, change their policies, but how do we really communicate that? And how do we share that with others so that they feel passionate and excited and intrigued about what we are trying to introduce? So it is a, a very powerful course and I'm really looking forward to it. And I just can't wait to start applying that to allies. So you've mentioned allies in the workplace a couple of times, which of course is part of Elevate Aviation. How did Mm -hmm. Elevate Aviation first show up on your radar, if I can jokingly refer to it that way? Oh, yeah, that's cute. Uh, Well, I met Kendra Kincaid. She is an honorary colonel for 417 here at Four Wing. And I met her and learned a little bit about Elevate. And she invited me to be on her podcast. And I talked about gaslighting, and that is the history of how I was really introduced to Elevate. Um, Kendra came up here a few times, and she spoke for the DWAO. So I had an opportunity to also fangirl over her. So from there, did the podcast, and then I met the team. And I initially came on the team as events, so starting with the cross-country tour, and that's now developed into director of DEI. So it's uh, an amazing organization to not only be a part of, but also I think to share with others because there's just so much that Elevate does that can really benefit aviation as a whole. So you oversee now um, part of the cross-country tour, but also diversity, equity, inclusion, um, which is also sometimes known as diversity, equity, belonging, and inclusion. Um, Can Mm -hmm. we talk about the cross-country tour first? What goes into planning Elevate Aviation's cross-country tour? So many emails. <laughs> so many I, emails. I, I can agree. So many emails. <laughs> so many yeah. Um, well, it's just to begin, it's a, a tour across Canada. So it's a way to really build that interest and uh, excitement for youth around different trades in aviation. So not just civilian world, we now have military bases that are going to be on the tour. And we have 22 cities that we're going to be visiting over a span of almost two weeks, which is a lot. So initially we have to, of course, find people that are interested in leading these cities and these leads are incredible. So we have not just 22 leads because some people there's co-leads. So we have more than 22 leads across Canada. And from there, they have built their own teams. So they have volunteers, they have uh, guest speakers. So there's four guest speakers per city. And then we have folks that are delivering the tours. So if they want to go look at the ATC tower, or maybe they're going to look in maintenance in the hangars and they're organizing that. And then we have, you know, a little snack and a bit of lunch. And then you also have to think too, there's the the teachers that are bringing the students to the event. So just a massive, massive team. So as co-directors for myself and Jackie Zacker, we are the co-directors for the Stewart and It just is a lot of coordination, but I can honestly say the leads are incredible 
and they do such amazing work that we are just forever impressed and just so, so proud of the work that they do. We think it's going to be an amazing tour this year. We're looking forward to it. I say we know each other through Elevate and particularly the cross country tour is sort of what connects us. And I can attest to the amount of work that goes into it from all different sides of it. And that the leads, they are uh, some of the unsung heroes of the cross country tour. There's, there's so much work that goes into it. And I I can speak from the Ontario experience where we have some pretty great (laughs) ladies running uh, the Ontario uh, tours this year. I know last year you were organizing the tours uh, and in 2022, they were, they were virtual. So what are you maybe most excited about by having them in person this year in 2023? I think the biggest thing about from virtual to in-person is you miss the reactions of the students. I am so excited. Like you had mentioned, everyone is putting so much work into this tour that I think the reward will see the faces of all the youth that are there and the students that are there that are just so excited to learn from these incredible speakers that we have all across Canada. So I'm just really looking forward to that and, and just seeing that engagement between the, the students and the speakers and, and seeing the inspiration that comes from that. I think you miss that when you're on virtual because often if it's a class, you aren't going to have a camera that's on them and, and able to kind of gauge the reactions and see that excitement. So I think that will be the biggest reward of all. So I'm really looking forward to that part. What does it mean to you personally and professionally to see the Canadian forces involved the way that they are this year by actually having tour dates that are at Canadian forces bases? Yeah, I think it's so great. So RCAF and Elevate Aviation has a formal partnership. And I think this is a way to really solidify and exemplify that and just show, hey, you know, just because you are air traffic control in the military versus civilian, we are all working towards the same thing. And it's the industry as a whole. But of course, there's always unique aspects to both the military and the civilian world. And I think it's really cool to see the merging of the two and bring them together. And also just to, to highlight these women across Canada, I think there's so much that so many women can bring to the table. And being able to include the military in that conversation is just so impactful. I know that just, uh, I mean, I, I come from a sort of civil aviation background. I don't really think in the terms of military aviation. And it's not typically for me until I'm in um, usually a CWIA conference where there is so much representation of civil aviation and military aviation that I think those conversations really start to happen where we are beginning to understand how it kind of works for one another. But no, there, there's so much that the Canadian forces can bring to I mean empowering women and the cross country tour. So it was very exciting for me to see how many Canadian forces bases were going to be tagged even just in Ontario this year. So that was that was always very exciting. Yeah, and we're ending at CFB Trenton, which I think is just such a really, really cool place to end. There's so much going on there. It's going to be an incredible tour, so really looking forward to that. Part of your role within Elevate as well is, again, allies in the workplace. So where did that originally come from, and how important is it to you to sort of see the development of diversity, equity, belonging, and inclusion in aviation and in the Canadian forces? Yeah, so... uh... Elevate Aviation had actually launched the Allies in the Workplace, and that was with the support of Women and Gender Equality, Canada's Feminist Response and Recovery Fund. So we are very, very honored to receive that grant, and we were able to then develop a three-phase program that helps aviation companies create an inclusive work environment for women. So the goal is to help them thrive and then develop into leadership roles. And by applying a DEI lens, we're able to not only welcome them into aviation, but make sure that they have a positive experience when they're actually there. So that was the development of Allies in the Workplace. And 
And so obviously the, the importance to me for advancing DEI in aviation as a whole. So in terms of allies in the workplace, it's so that everyone does feel welcome, they feel included, and that we also look at barriers of why people are not able to be recruited. So using the benchmarking tool that we've applied, it's called the GDEID, which is the Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Benchmarking Tool, again, with the acronym. Uh, what we do is when we go into these organizations, we deliver this, and it's 275 benchmarks. So they very methodically go through, find out where their organization is and where they can improve. And it looks at all kinds of things. So things like recruitment, um, job advancement, if there's opportunities, and from there, we're able to zoom out and say, okay, I think these are areas that we can really make big improvements or that we can tackle some of the low-hanging fruit that will also make you know, incremental changes over the months and years. So it is incredibly important. And I think when we, when we look at DEI, we also sometimes think, oh, that only applies to women and underrepresented too, but that's not true. So DEI benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. It gives everyone um, an opportunity to feel safe, to feel included, to feel like they belong and that they're valued. And when we start to move the needle on that, we see that it affects everyone in a very positive way. So, you know, kind of linking back to that change management piece, we have to make sure that we're implementing it in a way that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. So we're not just doing things in a performative way or throwing things out quickly. We have to make sure that there's the budget for it, the time for it, the commitment, the passion, you know, the desire for it. And then we'll, then we'll see the change. And that is really our, that is our mission in Allies is that we, we work alongside the organizations. We're not there to tell them what to do. We're there to co-create and we're there to say, where do you want to grow and how can we help you? And I think approaching them in that empathetic way of saying, I know you might not have all the answers and neither do we. That's always the biggest thing too. We might not have all the answers either, but we are going to work together and really get there as a team. So I think that's uh, really powerful as well. What is on the horizons for allies in the workplace and what is maybe the next big goal or change you would like to see that comes through that organization? Yeah, I, I wouldn't change a thing if I'm being honest. I really love the work that we're doing. Um, I think whenever we are interacting with the clients, it's so powerful for us and we are energized by it because these folks want us to be there. They want to see the change as well. It's just sometimes people don't know where to start and that's where we come in. So for us, we just love this work. We are so passionate about it and I'm just looking forward to doing more, working with more people and learning new things because there's also that piece as well. We talk about the accountability of ourselves and where are the gaps in our knowledge so that we can be the most um, you know, knowledgeable and committed to applying these changes. What was maybe the most surprising thing you learned when you started with Allies in the Workplace and focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, I think it was the, just the lack of awareness that folks had. I think there's a strong desire for people to want to do better, but how that looks is um, a bit unknown. Folks know that they want to be more inclusive. They, they know that they want to increase the DEI within their workplace. They just don't know how. And I was the most, I guess, surprised. Um, the lack of conversations that we have, the lack of open conversations that people are engaging with one another 
on topics like anti-racism, inclusion, oppression, our privilege. And so having the opportunity, and I do, I see this as an opportunity to actually engage in those conversations with others. Uh, I love that. I really, I love that piece. And I think it was really necessary because sometimes people don't always know the questions that they want to ask. They know it deep inside, but they don't know how to verbalize it. They don't know how to put it into a structured sentence sometimes. It just kind of comes out as, I don't understand what, you know, fill in the blank. And having that ability to meet people where they are in their journey on DEI is just incredible. I can speak to only my own experience here, but I remember having a discussion with friends of mine at the Urban Pilots Network and saying, how do I help? How do I get involved? But I'm concerned that me as a white woman will distract or co-opt what you're trying to do. How do I, how can I be an effective part of helping you guys move forward or a new project that you want without being a distraction or, or feeling kind of, or giving off any of the impression of be, having like a white savior complex? How do I help you with this? And their response yeah. was, well, good that you're aware that you could sort of be sort of co-opting this or doing it for um, not the right reasons. It could just be performative, but further, just being part is already helping and that mm -hmm. it, you, you you and your presence it, it was an uncomfortable conversation to have i mean I, I didn't love it but i thought everyone was very kind and patient with me as i was trying to figure out how best i can be an ally to underprivileged and upper underrepresented groups in aviation um while still having my own challenges within sort of the aviation sphere so those conversations are not always fun but they are very rewarding and i think everyone is better for it yeah, I agree entirely. And just, you know, the, the fact of asking those questions, right? And then, you know, further to that, it's having the humility to say, this isn't, this isn't my platform to other, you know, talk about these things. Somebody else is better suited for this. Someone else is better to elevate their voice and talk about, you know, a discussion on anti-racism or when we talk about uh, Indigenous awareness. So who is a better fit for that? Would it be me as a white woman? Absolutely not. So we want to look and find who is the right voice for this. It's someone with the lived experience. And we talk about that a lot in Allies is we have to elevate the voices of folks that have lived experience mm -hmm. and making sure that, you know, they're given the platform. So I think that's a huge part of recognizing our privilege as well as knowing also when to give that platform up to someone else who is more suited and um, deserves to have their voice elevated. So in addition to the work you do professionally, the work you do through volunteerism, you're also Emily, the healthy, happy, well-rounded human being. And on your own time, you are busy as well, enjoying functional yeah. fitness, astronomy, and golf. How do all of yeah. those come together to make the Emily that I have in front of me today? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I just, um, I like a lot of different things. I really enjoy astronomy. I am always looking up at the sky. It, I find it to be a way to ground myself. I think there's something absolutely fascinating about looking up and seeing the moon. And I always try to take the other perspective of the moon looking down on earth. And here we are, this tiny little planet floating around in the, in the universe is just, um, it's humbling to me. But I'm also so fascinated by space. And I just had a telescope not too long ago and I'm always, you know, sneaking a peek in there. And I just like to learn more. There's so much to learn when it comes to astronomy and it just blows my mind. I'm just completely fascinated. So I love that. Uh, really enjoy golf. We have a really, really great ladies group that goes out in the summer and we're having fun with that. And I just got into cross country skiing. I am a beginner beginner and I fall every time, but it is so much fun. 
And I think it's so important to get outside here in the winter because Cold Lake is actually very cold. And I've spent way more time outside than I think I ever have. But it's just been so much fun. I just am really enjoying getting out there. Say, so I, I know in particular my mom is a big cross country skier. So I know that her tips would be make sure you have a peanut butter sandwich with you and also some <laughs> granola. Oh, I need to start packing a peanut butter sandwich. It's okay. And cross country skiing is hard it's so I also harder. need to say it's like it's a nightmare like why do we do these things but it is it's hard but it's so much fun and I also love especially here in Cold Lake the amount of nature that I'm able to see in animals out on the trails it's just incredible and I love that especially in the winter you get to see the daytime moon which obsessed so maybe that's like the intersection between astronomy and my <laughs> country ski goals but yeah it's been uh you know, being busy, but that's a great way for me to kind of, you know, take a break from all my work stuff. So I love that for you. Um, I, <laughs> I'm i a big fan of cross-country skiing. I think being outdoors is, is always helpful, um, whether it's sort of this, uh, this double bind of the fact that you feel most grounded when you are looking at space and sort of being able to kind of change the perspective of feeling so small in the grand grand universe that that can be quite grounding for you I, I i i love that i'm glad that you have ways of relaxing and getting to feel at one with yourself because of course we can do all the things we want to do but if we're not healthy happy human beings none of the work we do is going to be as impactful as we hope yeah absolutely i also drink a lot of coffee so i feel like that helps a lot <laughs> it probably does <laughs> yeah when it comes to your role within Elevate Aviation, it is an organization founded on the principle of mentorship and paying it forward and giving it back. So I recognize that the question I'm about to ask is a tricky one, but who's someone you admire in aviation and why? That's always an interesting question to me. I, I don't really idolize anyone, if I'm being honest. I am very impressed and um, astounded by the women that I'm surrounded with trying to buy. Um, this past weekend being in Halifax at that conference for the Transforming Military Cultures Network, I had a few moments where I looked up at the panelists and these women who have created this network, so the co-directors, and I was just so in awe of these women. So they have dedicated their life's work to making the CAF a better place. And some of them have never even served. And so that to me was so humbling that people care enough that they're willing to put in the research, put in the time, put in the effort, um, you know, put put themselves on the line really because what a, what a tough thing to do, research the Canadian Armed Forces and, you know, make recommendations to an organization that you're not even serving in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just was so, so impressed. And so, you know, I, I look at all of them and I think that to me is, that's where I, I find my role models is the, the women around me and the ones that I really surround myself with in my close circles as well. You know, I, I call them friends, but I also call them, you know, my inspirations as well. So I think that's so powerful. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm proud of that. And I'm also uh, humbled by that because I think that we should be challenged by those that are closest to us. And uh, they definitely push me to be better. And I'm thankful for that. But that's actually also where I, I gain my biggest mentorship as well are the people in my closest circle. So thankful for that. I know we have quite a lot of overlap in terms of our friend group, but I will say that it is 
quite moving to have friends of yours, peers of yours, that are people that can inspire you, that you can look up to, that motivate you, and that equally are champions of you. It's it's an incredible thing I find with a lot of the women I know in aviation who are our age that while we could all be competitive with each other, and there is a little bit of that, more <laughs> so it is about encouraging one another, being so thrilled when someone gets that dream job or that next benchmark for them. It's It's truly amazing that as opposed to being all competitive, it seems to be this this very large sort of community of cheering one another on. Yeah, I know. And there's so much strength in that um, because we experience so much competitiveness at work and just in life as it is, we just don't need to be doing that amongst our, our peer group. And so I agree with you entirely. We need to be champions of one another and raise each other up, but also to challenge each other. And I think that's the biggest part too, to really come alongside each other and say, hey, like, I think you can do better. I think you can do more. You're capable of more. You can do this. I believe in you. And having that behind you, just, oh my goodness, that really, you know, moves me. So I think that's so important. Now, what would you say is maybe a career highlight for you so far? I, I know you've gotten to do so many wonderful things and it doesn't need to be limited to just your working life, but what is maybe a highlight or something that was so profoundly moving for you? Uh, one of the... The most recent thing was I was just published in the Canadian Military Journal, and it was my first publication, and uh, that was humbling for sure. Because of course, anytime you write anything, you think it's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> I think any academic or or anyone that's in creative writing or anything like that always believes that to be true that the writing is the worst. So it was, um, yeah, that was really impactful to be published for the first time, and then just the response that I received as well. Uh, because it was approached through the lens of a junior non-commissioned woman in the military. And so to have that feedback from folks all across Canada was um, a little overwhelming, if I'm being honest. And I know submitting a piece like that was incredibly vulnerable. And I was a little worried. I'm not going to lie. It was uh, you know, a bit of a hard hitter. But that is uh, that was definitely one of my career highlights for sure. Now, of course, 42 Radar was a fun home to you for a couple of years, but what do you do in your day-to-day -day now? Yeah, so now I'm at the Combat Operations Center, and I just love that job. So I work in operations, and we do wing operations as well as the NORAD ops. And it is, uh, you know, it's different from day-to-day. -day. You just never know what you're going to receive when that phone rings, but I just love the challenge of it. So it's uh, been a really, really great opportunity for me. Congratulations to you on that article. I mean, that was a big deal Thank to be you. published. I I'm, I'm, was very impressed to see that. I just again only saw it on your LinkedIn, but I knew that clearly based on the reaction to ev that everyone had to that article, it was clearly not just an everyday thing. So I'm very glad to see that you were sort of having that opportunity and getting recognized that way. In the article, one of the recommend recommendations you make is on reverse mentoring. And can you explain a little bit more about what that is and why you think that that would be such a powerful thing to implement? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my mentors is Dr. Alan Okros, and he speaks a lot about reverse mentoring. And, um, you know, when I had done a lot of reading on that, there's a lot of information in the U.S. military as well that are trying to implement reverse mentoring. Really what that is, is digging into the knowledge of the younger generations to inform the older generations. And I think it's something that we often miss that piece. And what it does is it really, it fills that gap between generations. And we know that we're experiencing that, not just in the military, but we're experiencing that across Canada um, with the up and comers 
as they come in, there's there definitely is a disconnect between that zeitgeist of their respective generations, right? So we have ways that they feel motivated, um, the way that the new generation looks at work as a whole, the way that they engage in, um, you know, developing themselves and moving forward in their careers. So really what this will do is if we're looking at, for example, culture change, do we really want folks who have been in for 25 years being the only voice in what we need to do to change the culture? Hmm. I just don't think that that's the best way forward. So, you know, we really need to dig into that new generation to say, how does this look for you? What do you think would be beneficial? What do you think would want to, you know, promote retention for you? And then how do we do this in a way that everyone has meaningful buy-in? So really merging the two. Um, and then, you know, there's also that the value of the, the, the junior generation to just let them have a voice, but to do something about it. I think we talk a lot about giving people a voice, but if people are just speaking and no one's actually receiving what they're saying and, you know, internalizing it and putting that into action, then really that's a little performative. So this is reverse mentoring is saying, hey, I, um, I would like to know a little bit more about what you think about the new dress regulations or how can we make this better or you know, do you like the hours that we're working right now? Is there a barrier to you working these hours right now? And those are just some like very small examples, but really it's having that beneficial co-creation. And so it's not just receiving, it's also just co-creating together, which is so powerful. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? I am all over social media. So I am on Instagram and Twitter and my, uh, what is that little thing called? How you can find me is Rami Ryman. So R-E-I-M-A-N. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Emily Ryman. I'm spelling in my last name, not grammatically correct. And I'm also on Facebook, but I don't use that very often. It's the exact same thing that's on my Instagram. But anyone is welcome to connect with me and I'd love to connect with everyone. We will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. Emily Ryman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Laura. It was a pleasure. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.